0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Trish, I am
1: deep in Parents Evening for my son. Mm. A levels. GCSEs, mocks, all of that. And a terrible, a terrible thing happened. Obviously, you know, you oh, get this set of instructions from your children. You know, don't speak, don't breathe, don't wear anything. with <laughs> colorful Don't make any eye contact. Don't make eye contact. Don't mention personal yes. names. I did once call my son by his pet name in front of his English teacher, which was terrible. Um, but again, it happened again this week with his mm. English teacher when we were talking about writing um, and my son's quite quiet he was practically mute in this and uh, the English teacher said well you know obviously you can ask at home about writing because your mum's mum does a lot of writing doesn't she she's a journalist she's got things <laughs> and my son but he went red from the neck oh. up to the top of his head and said absolutely nothing oh. and afterwards he said to me <laughs> uh, you can't come anymore to parents evening that's oh. that's it it's over
2: but that slightly defeats the purpose because it's well, parents' evening. Da- call it Dad's evening. Well, I said, yeah. What will happen? It'll just be
1: you and your dad not saying very much, and then I won't get any information. And I said, well, it does get worse because obviously next week I'm going to your school to talk about careers and, and getting into careers. And he said, well, don't talk about writing. I said, no, I'm, I'm talking to the boys about fashion and oh. beauty. Oh, no. <laughs> I think he's going to go into the witness protection scheme.
2: Oh, I think something like that. I mean, wait till he finds out you do a podcast. Never mind the writing. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Lorraine Candy and I'm Trish Halpin. If you're living in a hormonal hothouse, feeling a bit overwhelmed and in need of some positive, uplifting and comforting guidance on how to lead a more magnificent midlife, then this is the show for you. We chat to celebrities and
1: experts on all things midlife, from menopause and perimenopause to parenting teens, by fashion, beauty, wellness, nutrition, fitness, careers, relationships, caring for elderly
2: relatives and your finances. Yes, we ask experts and famous guests all the questions you need answered to have a happier, healthier and more harmonious second act. There's going to be no beating around the bush this week, Lorraine. I'm going to get straight to it by sharing some rather sexy news uh, <laughs> that's reached Postcards Towers.
1: Sexy news. I don't... I
2: don't think I like
1: you saying sexy no. news. Well, you can't embarrass me. I'm a former editor of Cosmopolitan.
2: I'm like your parent now and you're your son, aren't you? Yes. I embarrassed you.
1: Yeah. I don't like hearing you say sexy news. Okay. It makes me feel funny inside. Is it one of those random emails we get from... PRs who should know better about promoting dubious
2: objects to midlife women. <laughs> yes, no, we get a lot of those. So this one is actually generally genuinely something fabulous that caught my attention as soon as it pinged into the inbox because it's Gillian Anderson. Oh, we love her—the fabulous Gillian of X-Files, Sex Education, and The Crown fame. And she's writing a new book all about women's sex lives and sexual fantasies, and she wants all of our lovely listeners uh, to get in touch with her.
1: Um, It's probably inspired then by her role, isn't it, as uh, sexy sex therapist, Jean Milburn, in Sex Education, the Netflix show.
2: Do you know you said sex three times in that sentence? (laughs) trying to break a world world record let let me tell you what Gillian has to say about it she says as women we know that sex is about more than just sex but so many of us don't talk about it our deepest most intimate fears and fantasies remain locked away inside of us I want to hear from you this will be anonymous revelatory book compiling your letters to me to explore how women think about sex because when we talk about sex we talk about womanhood and motherhood infidelity and exploitation consent and respect fairness and egalitarianism love and hate pleasure and pain i mean who knew she's right there's so much wrapped up in it all and if you would like to share that strange fantasy you had last night lorraine that you were telling me about earlier is it elasticated pants again trish (laughs) you talking in your sleep telling neil about your elasticated trousers that was a fantasy for sure. But you can get involved by going to her website, which is uh, dearjillian.com. And um, of course, she says that any correspondence will be treated in the utmost confidence. Gillian will be pleased to hear from me, won't she? Because
1: oh. obviously, I have met Gillian.
2: Of course, you have.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I interviewed her when I did a big feature on sex education um, for the Sunday Times. Oh, yes. Talked about many things, talked about sex, etc. But there is one interesting thing about Gillian, which might, because she, she is so beautiful and she's very lovely mm. in the flesh. Uh, but you know how we are miniature people? She is more miniature than you and me. Than us? No, my goodness. She was wearing these lovely white heeled boots and she was still tinier than me.
2: What about mm. that then?
1: See, some people are much, much smaller in the flesh.
2: Mm. Did you embarrass yourself with her or did she... No,
1: it was a really odd... They, we were, were due to do an interview at a hotel in London, really big hotel, and it was so noisy everywhere. I couldn't record it. She speaks very quietly. Mm. Um, so the hotel waitress took us to the Chinese restaurant at the top of the hotel, which was completely empty. Oh. So we had this bizarre two hours sat in a
2: Chinese, empty Chinese an empty Chinese restaurant, Chinese
1: restaurant chatting. Cool. Yeah. No, it was lovely, actually. That will
2: be one of your deathbed memories, won't it? Looking back.
1: Well, I'm surprised. <laughs> like, you know, my brain fog is so bad, Trish, I can barely remember anything anyway
2: but we're gonna we'll put the details up won't we of Julian's project on the facebook group um but we may get censored if we say sexy sex sex too much because they don't like that on the social media platforms do they
1: They don't like women. I'm going to wheel out Millie now, my uh, feminist left-wing alter ego. They don't like women saying Mm. sex or sexy things. They don't mind horrible men sending you horrible pictures of themselves or talking about it at all and harassing you. Facebook didn't like one of our group experts, who's amazing, the sex coach Mm. and educator Ruth Ramsey. We couldn't call her a sex expert on Facebook, so she is listed as a group relationship expert. That's not fair. It makes me very cross. It makes Millie <laughs> very, very cross. I'll have a good old rant on Instagram later, I expect. Anyway, Ruth is going to be sharing her knowledge and answering all the big midlife sex and intimacy questions at our live show, isn't she? she? Is. So that is yes. going to be fantastic. So she will be at Postcards from Midlife Live on the 19th and 20th of May, when we will be able to talk about sex, sexuality, relationships, dating, all those things. Female body parts. vulvas.
2: Exactly. Vulvas and vaginas. They mentioned that. Can I just tell you? They mentioned that on The Archers recently. One of the characters said vulva and vagina in The Archers. What's
1: The Archers? <laughs> Don't know of what you speak. This is yeah, how I resist. Exactly. Let's not go old. there. Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, so if you have any questions, anything you want to ask, um, and about desire and libido and all that kind of thing, get your tickets to Postcards from Midlife Live. And we will answer those questions for you. Ruth will. Mm, she will. Have you got your tickets yet, young Trish? <laughs> so you can talk about your revolver and vagina. <laughs> My revolver? Is That sounds like a musical instrument, doesn't it? Oh, no, that's a vuvuzela. It's a different thing. Is it? Have I said that right? <laughs> oh, dear. I don't know. Will I, do you think I'll be allowed in? Will I be allowed in? Well, it depends if you bring that furry plus one <laughs> or not. I'm not letting you anywhere near me if you bring Margot the cat but you have to come because we're going to be interviewing so many experts and celebrities and I can't do it all on my
2: own no and they're your, all your celebrity pals all of them in one room in the flesh can you imagine <laughs> but listen no more time for name dropping everyone can find out about um, tickets and the show at Um and I have to I'm glad we've got the name dropping out of the way because we have so much to get through today um, and we have to be on our best behaviour because we have pod- podcasting podcasting legend it hasn't started very well has it i know i know it's all gone off the rails but we do have a podcasting legend elizabeth day coming onto the show
1: yes i've been practicing all week upping my audio (laughs) game um she has set the bar really high with her podcast how to fail it's had a staggering listen trish hold the side of your chair 35 million downloads Mm -hmm. (laughs) um my brain can't compute a number that big no, it's a big
2: number, isn't it? But you can't compute small numbers No. Either, can you? <laughs> but you're very good at writing, as yes, your son's teacher very good at writing. likes to point out. Um, so if if Elizabeth invited us on to her podcast yes, failing, would that be one of your failures? Numbers. Being good at maths?
1: Um, I think actually more my failure of controlling my hobnob intake. Oh. That's where the numbers get really out of control and I get all confused
2: (laughs) oh fair enough but listen I I mean we're all fans of her book how to fail Um, it's probably on the shelves of many of our listeners homes too and she's going to be here today to talk about her new book called philosophy for teens which she describes as a handbook for when things go wrong and we know all too well don't we that things certainly do go wrong in the teen years
1: Yes, I think it's been particularly difficult for this generation mm. of teens. Um, we're actually going to be discussing this in what is Children's Mental Health Week. So yes. um, I think it's a really important topic, particularly for women of our generation. I'm very saddened, actually, but not surprised, to read that child mental health care referrals are up by 39% <gasps> last year. Wow. Um, it's so much pressure, isn't it? For, mm. I, I certainly know with my older teenagers who went through the pandemic um, and who were the first generation to get social media, the pressure on them mentally as their brains are developing seems to have been absolutely huge. There's a couple of books I should mention, I think. Um, Tara Porter's book, You Don't Understand Me, which is great for teenagers to, so they can voice what they're going through. And obviously, Lisa D'Amour's book, The Emotional Life of Teens, because Lisa's coming on, she isn't is. she, later this month. But they've had COVID, teachers' strikes. They've had probably more pressure than any other generation i think
2: Yeah, i mean i was having a um a lovely heart heart chat with my son the other night and it kind of really struck me that the stuff that plays on his mind is stuff that i probably didn't think about for another three or four years mm. so he's what what he's thinking about at 19 i was thinking it about it 23, 24. So, you know, what's his career going to be? Is he going to be successful? You know, I'm like, you're just going into the university years. You should just be able to enjoy that without having this enormous amount of pressure about being successful I I don't know it is so it'll be interesting very interesting to hear what um, Elizabeth has to say about that and how failure how to get them to understand that failing is an important part of that journey too
1: yes and to be resilient and cope with life I've had three conversations with mums this week about their teenagers who started university during the lockdown Mm -hmm. and how lonely they are and how how they're struggling to make friends so they feel that they failed to do that as well because they didn't really have the same start as we did to do that. So I think, yeah, it be interesting to see what Elizabeth says. Um, that's in about 10 minutes' time. We're going to have a bit of a jibber-jabber. Mm-hmm. We are going to pick three things that we like because there are no rules to podcasting. <laughs> 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 and we are a lifestyle podcast and yes. uh, we're going to pick some things that bring some joy into our everyday lives, aren't we? Yes.
2: Well, we like to be helpful
1: and joyful at the same time, I would say. That's my favourite combination, that and a gin and a tonic at the same time. I like that too.
2: Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. (laughs) I don't know what's happening. (gasps) These are a few of my favourite things. We're doing our favourite things, aren't we? She's burst into song.
1: Is there something (laughs) funny that happens? When you go over the bridge from north, where I am, to the mad, mad south, where you are, where South London, South London, it's sort of La La Land in Wandsworth, and you're kind of living in a musical (laughs) in in some kind of camp musical.
2: Well that's how I like to see my life (laughs) through my rose-tinted glasses. (laughs) I just thought you know a little song nice way to tee up our lovely things jibber jabber. Um, We've both selected three things haven't we that are giving us a dollop of delight this month. You go first Lorraine after you. I've done a strange thing which is very out of character
1: which will probably make you laugh but it has oddly scientifically brought me delight in my life. I'm going to hold it up in front of you. It's yes. called the five minute journal. Right. Every day, I bought this on the advice of a friend, uh, intelligentchange.com, sell them on Amazon. Every day, Trish. Yes. I write in it. And every evening, I write in it. You're journaling. Listen, don't say that word.
2: It's don't what it like is. It. <laughs> That's what it I is. I write You're three
1: journaling. things I'm grateful for. Yes. I write three things that would make my day great. I write a daily affirmation. And then at the end of the day, I write my highlights and what I learned. So obviously I started this with a giant dollop of scepticism mm. and cynicism because that is my nature. Mm, default setting. Uh, you do it for six months. It's not, not you date it yourself, so it can be done start at any time. I've been doing it
2: since the very beginning of January. Let me tell you, it is very useful. Uh, oh, is it just making it, what's it doing? Making you realise things about your life and the people in it that you maybe hasn't appreciated before. Exactly. And you set an intention
1: at the beginning of the day. And at the the beginning, I wasn't really following them. But actually, now I am. And you're also slightly mindful of, you know, when you write things, three things that would make your day great, you then make sure you do them. You think, oh, Mm -hmm. I I wanted to, you know, go for a walk at lunchtime, or I wanted to ring that friend for my eight-minute chat, or I wanted to... And you actually do it in a way. And then when you look back, you get a sense of, where you started and where you are and you start feeling happy grateful Mm -hmm. those things the wellness awful tells you that will happen oh well that's good that's
2: good i'm pleased to hear it i am quite pleased with my journaling yes i think everybody should do it or just have a little bit of time in the morning and the evening to reflect on the day and look ahead i think it's really powerful so well done you that's a good one so my first one now I know I'm always late to the party with everything, but there's now? a reason, right? I've got a website called Vinterias, yes, and it's it's basically a marketplace for sort of antique and secondhand everything Men. furniture. Oh, no. <laughs> I've got one of those already, um, an, an antique man, um, yes, yeah, uh, antique and vintage furniture art everything and it's got this amazing stuff and the reason I've been looking at it is that the time has finally arrived with the kids gone well half gone one of them we promised ourselves we would do up the house when this happened because obviously the place is trashed as you know between the kids the cat the dog everything. maria condo has just said hasn't she
1: she's never tidying up again because she's now got
2: three children so what's the point there is no point for 15 years exactly there is no point so we've been living with the same grotty paint you know tatty furniture so we're going to do it we haven't got a massive budget so i stumbled across vinteria.co it's amazing it's my new Friday night scrolling with a gin and tonic instead of property oh, sites oh, instead dear. of escape the country what are you going to get first
1: where are you starting well, are you starting in the guest room for me I want um, a few
2: to come and stay <laughs> exactly put a few bars on the windows and the door yeah. that would work wouldn't it no I was look started by looking up sideboards and it's so it what's so amazing is you get all these like you, know, do you remember the g-plan sideboards that we had them, in yeah. our houses when we were growing up but people upcycled them and I found the most incredible ones at have had découpage done. You know You I know don't that is? know what découpage, découpage is. I've Remember probably pronounced that wrong. who you're talking to. It's <laughs> like where they cut out pictures from bits of paper. It could be wallpaper right. or posters. And then they sort of overlay it onto a piece of furniture. And then they cover it in varnish. So you get essentially a piece of artwork. And you've got lots of people doing this on these amazing... You know, you can get an amazing sideboard for about £400. Pounds. So I'm just very excited. And it was started by two young women, two young British women. And of course now huge success. So um that's where you'll okay. find me on a friday right. night having a scroll
1: through that will you. So talking of gin and tonic yeah. brings me to my second thing that's brought me some it's joy. It's
2: booze booze related.
1: I, it's brought me great joy, but it has brought me joy. So I tried to do dry january, stopped mm. boring, just boring couldn't work out my motivation for it because I did realize then, you know, you're just having these non-alcoholic drinks. Because everyone else is having a drink, so Mm. you might as well be having a drink. So I stepped away from it, but I did do some testing of non-alcoholic drinks because I thought it would be nice to have an alternative. Were they nice? So uh, Seedlip I quite liked. I know a lot of people have talked about that. I then tried some of the CBD-infused ones. Oh, like the sound of those. On the advice of Alan Titchmarsh. (laughs) Who? (laughs) Alan Titchmarsh. (laughs) CBD. He's got... (laughs) Probably the world's most boring telly program, but um, they were testing <laughs> CBD-infused uh, drinks. There's there's something called Trip, which comes in lots of different uh, flavours. You can get a mm. six pack for about fourteen pounds, and I really like the peach, ginger, and lemon basil one. So if you want a alternative to an alcoholic drink, mm. it's not non-alcoholic. It's just it's quite
2: but nice to give you the little buzz because I think that's the problem half the time, isn't it?
1: I am very susceptible. Uh, to these things like hypnotherapy so yes it did but uh, i gave I'm you a little buzz well alan titchmar sent me to sleep so he wouldn't you know, have given you a drowsy <laughs> um I, I did try some beers i don't no. think so um and i did read about something called sentia spirits which affect the gaba part of the brain that do make you feel a little bit drink mm. three people on the daily mail had tested them Ooh. and they said they did work so I didn't try them because they were quite expensive. However, I did try and I did like Tanqueray 0% gin. Oh, good. That's my tip for you. That was the one, I think, of all all of those that I tried that I thought, you know, if I was going to have a gin and tonic while everyone else was having a gin and tonic, that would be the one I would go to. It's £17, so it's not a lot cheaper than normal gin. No, it's not at all, (laughs)
3: actually.
2: Yeah have a go at that is what I'm saying. Have a go at the alcohol-free gin. Worked. Okay. So my next one is a foodie one and comes with a challenging pronunciation. I I don't know whether it's dukkah or dukkah. Do you know what that is? Do you know what it is? Okay. So it's it's a a very traditional, I think it's Egyptian blend of nuts, seeds and spices. And uh, you can whiz up a jar of it and have it in the cupboard and then just toss it onto everything and it's really delicious and I have had it in the past but I saw it pop up again in um Dr. Rupee Algela's ah. new cookery book the lovely Dr. Rupee. his book is called Dr. Rupee Cooks Healthy Easy Flavor and I found the most delicious brunch I was, I was like, oh my goodness poached eggs and lemon greens with hazelnut dukkah so the nuts sprinkled through the greens and the lemon and then
1: the supermarkets just spread in waitrose i have some somebody bought me some and said you
2: put this on your food to
1: make it more interesting
2: oh that's quite a nice little gift yeah but so easy to make you just get a bunch of nuts. anyway recipes for that everywhere but um dr rupee we've got some news about dr rupee don't we
1: i like that cookbook they yes. sent it to me. And the news yes. is Dr. Rupi and his simple, easy, engaging
2: recipes will be at postcards from Midlife Yay! Live. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So you can meet Dr. Rupi and his duca there in May. Right. Next up for
1: you, your last one, number three. Right. I'm trying to be more organized in my slow down life. Uh, mm-hmm. trying not to do so much. So one of the things I resolved to do at the beginning of the year is to get more meaningful presence for people. So, you know, it, it, when, when I was working, and I'm sure you were the same, and many of our listeners are, I was always in such a rush all the time. And mm-hmm. I think at lunchtime, oh my God, I've it's somebody's birthday tomorrow. I'm just going to rush out and throw some money at something, or I'm just going to look online and grab some jewellery. And then, Actually, what I think you need in midlife is something a little bit more thoughtful and more time spent on it. Not necessarily more expensive, mm. just a bit more time. You know, what would that person specifically like? And also, all our friends have got things, haven't they? Yes. We've got the kind of thing. So, I was looking around for a friend's present the other day, and I found an artist's website. It's called Dan Dan Jameson, and he makes these things called hate plates, Trish. Oh, <laughs> Bear with me. This sounds like a Millie suggestion. No, no, no. no. They're no. very, very okay. funny. Actually, Glassette, um, Laura Jackson's website, sells them as well. So they have little things written on them. So it's pottery, mm-hmm. basically. I'm going to get one for you because oh. I can imagine you saying this. It's a little plate and it's got, please be more careful with the special glasses. <laughs> and then you can get me one and it says, please stop overcomplicating the plan. <laughs>
2: I like that. that or sounds another one. good. Please
1: be more useful and fetch the wine. Yes, very <laughs> so these, good. Are, but you, they're bespoke, so they're made. Oh. So you have to plan it and do it and think about yes. it and buy it in time. They're around £80, depending on the sort of sizes you want. But Martha Freud, um, the potter, does those as well. She has little things written on place. Oh. But again, you have to plan it and think of it in advance. So my resolution was to be more thoughtful, plan ahead with my presents and buy some more arty kind of keepable collectible things.
2: yes and you've obviously popped that in your journal haven't you so that little I've thought that in my journal. has gone in your journal very
1: good I've written don't tell Trish about journals she might make fun of me <laughs>
2: Yeah, because I just love the way you're so yes. good at making everything sound new and you've just discovered it. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, we've been talking about journaling for 20, 25 years, but I'm glad you've discovered it. It's very good for you. Well, it's all the stuff you said I should try that. I said,
1: oh, oh, stop it. <laughs> Pass me another gin and tonic.
2: Well, that's because you you could put on the, um, on the pottery that I'm always right, couldn't you? There is that as well. That could be my little message. But yes. I, my last thing could also be a present i would say um i have finally found the perfect cream eyeshadow you can see me waving this little silver tube stick thing around where's this from well this is by terry so you know the fabulous makeup artist terry de gunsberg who is a bit of a legend she was the creative director at Yves Saint Laurent, and she invented Touche Clar. Do you remember yeah. Touche Clar, the little concealer, highlighters? Oh, my God. The lifesaver that used to go under our eyes. Yeah. Yes. So her range, which has been available for ages, is at is Cult Beauty, Space NK, and John Lewis. And I discovered this cream eyeshadow called... What colour are you wearing, young lady? Um it's called ombre black star cream eyeshadow and my color is called bronze moon and what i love about it is you know because powders and everything you have to use a brush and blend it and i just really can't do that i'm rubbish i just need something that i can slick on you know rub a bit yeah. with my finger and off you go and this is it this is it i found it but the technical turn isn't just smudge it on with your finger it's called buffing so you buff it on buff it on and and i love it. it lasts all day doesn't crease i think that is a really nice present for any of your midlife friends as well and they've got about uh several colors you could pick the right one for your friend but really nice every day little bit shiny little bit glossy because remember sally hughes yes. who came on the show said important to wear something glossy rather than too matte and kind of dry yes. so i'm very pleased with that about That's 30 pounds 30 pounds There we are. That's six lovely things. Six lovely things. Six lovely things.
1: Now we've done six lovely things, we can interview one lovely thing, can't we? (laughs) Time to interview Elizabeth. She's one of the most listened to women on the planet, whose awesome success is giddy to watch. Yet our next guest has made a career out of talking about failure. It's time to welcome Elizabeth Day, the podcaster and best-selling novelist who has written five books, won awards for her journalism, and is regularly on TV and radio guiding the nation's cultural highlights. But Elizabeth, 44, is here today to talk about your teenagers. Her debut children's book, Philosophy for Teens, offers gentle guidance for the nation's adolescents on how to cope when life goes wrong or they mess up. It's based on her previous book, Philosophy, which examined what we learn when setbacks derail us and life doesn't meet our expectations. Philosophy sold over 150,000 copies and was inspired by her podcast, How to Fail, which has had over 35 million downloads. By generously sharing her personal story of divorce at 36 and experiences of IVF and miscarriages, Elizabeth has made it possible for women to navigate the worst of times with hope. Trish and I have known young Elizabeth as we like to call her for many years we watched her career blossom with pride she's one of the brightest stars of her generation and a torchbearer for millennial women grappling with difficult situations and emotions today she is happily married and a social media star whose sidekick is much loved too i'm talking about huxley her cat welcome to postcards from midlife elizabeth Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. I feel like I'm with friends already,
0: even (laughs) though we're actually recording it for public consumption. (laughs) Well,
1: it is a treat to have you on our Gen X podcast. Shall we start by you telling our listeners, who may not know your background, um, why you think philosophy hits such a nerve, um, and particularly with women, because you've talked about the gender, the way the genders differ with philosophy. Why have women embraced it? Well,
0: so to go back a bit, I launched a podcast called How to Fail in 2018, which came about as a result of failures in my own life, self perceived failures. So my 30s have been a very intense decade, as I know that they are for many people. I'd got married, then divorced. I tried and failed to have children. I had the first of a few rounds of IVF unsuccessfully. And then I got into a relationship with a, a younger man, which ended just before my 39th birthday. So I really felt that I was ricocheting from that idea of what my life would be and my expectation for myself with combining that with the reality. And I was sort of ricocheting like a pinball between the two of them. So I started this podcast, which was interviewing people about times that they failed in their lives. And after two years of doing the podcast, I realized that there were certain themes that came up again and again and again. And that was the genesis for philosophy. So I came up with seven principles of failure which was shaped by those podcast interviews and by the very wise guests that I met. And you're right that it resonated as far as I know, because I think women are probably more expressive when they like things, (laughs) Uh, just to generalize hugely. As far as I know, it has struck a chord with women. And I think it's for a number of reasons. One is, is that women are socially conditioned to believe that they must meet everyone's expectations and therefore when you feel that you're not meeting everyone's expectations because you can't because spoiler alert that's a myth you can't it's totally impossible you then internalize that failure and as women we are still people who who have to battle endemic inequality whereas if you are lucky enough to be born into this world a white cis middle class man you are born into a world that is more or less made in your image so if you encounter an obstacle along your path, the chances are you don't internalize that failure in the same way. You see it as something that's overcomable on your eventual guaranteed route to success. If you're a woman or a marginalized person, someone living with a chronic illness um, from, a, from an ethnic community that isn't necessarily represented in the mainstream, that's less likely to happen. I think a lot of women just felt relieved that someone had spoken openly about failure and given them a practical toolkit. That's my hope anyway.
2: And then the practical toolkit that you talk about, you have now put into your new book, which is Philosophy for Teenagers. Um, you wrote it with an educational psychologist, I believe. And um, you, the chat it's chapters, isn't it, of the seven principles. Do you want to maybe just talk us through, top line, those seven principles about failure?
0: So this is where I often fail to remember them when I'm (laughs) speaking about it in list format. So I have it right here next to me. The first failure principle is that failure just is. That sounds obvious and a statement of fact, but actually it's quite profound because what I'm getting at there is that failure happens to us all. Whatever age we are, whatever demographic we're from, the one inevitable is that we will all fail at some point in our lives. Therefore, you cannot live your life in fear of it. And you cannot live your life trying to avoid it. I mean, obviously, we try and avoid it where we can. But at some point, it will happen and life will throw you a curveball. And once you realize that, it's quite liberating. So that's the first failure principle. The second one is that you are not your worst thoughts, that you are so much more than the sum of your most difficult days. And that quite often, your internal critic is not telling you the truth. Our brains are geared up to, especially in the life that we now live, our brains were designed to scout the horizon for willy beermoths and saber-toothed tigers. But now we live in a world where we don't have to scan the horizon for saber-toothed tigers, but we are constantly scrolling through social media and perceiving things as threats that might not be threats. And therefore, it's a question of interrogating your brain as to what it's actually telling you and whether that's the truth or not. And that was informed by an incredible man called Mo Gowder, and he talks about your brain as a, a bodily organ in the same way that your heart is. You would not think you are defined by your blood, that the heart pops around the body. And you shouldn't make the same mistake of thinking that you're defined by your thoughts. Thoughts are produced by your brain as almost sort of biological matter. And it's about picking the ones that are most helpful for you and most truthful to you. That feels just like the
2: most important thing we can get our teen, teens to understand, isn't it? That, that voice yes. thing in the head.
0: Yeah. So let the, let the thoughts pass through. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And actually, just to go a bit deeper on this one, a practical way of doing this is treating your brain like a separate entity and giving your brain a name. And Mo gives his brain a name um, and he calls his brain Becky because there was a very annoying girl at his school who was constantly pointing out all the things that could go wrong. And when his brain is stuck on this anxious narrative loop and it's saying, you're a failure, no one likes you, he stops himself wherever he is and he says, Becky, I would like you to give me objective evidence for that assertion. And if you don't have objective evidence, I'd like you to take that negative thought and replace it with a positive one. And although that sounds weird, it does actually really, really work because what you've done there is you've just taken a moment to interrogate what your anxious brain is telling you. And so I'd encourage any parents listening to this or teenagers who might be listening to this to name your brain and to have a bit of fun with the name. Who really annoys you? (laughs) Or or what name do you think represents an annoying person? Yeah, and then you don't necessarily take what that annoyed person says as fact. You interrogate it.
1: You you uh, you interviewed Mo Live where he talks about the Becky brain. So if any of our listeners want to drop back into one of your podcasts,
0: he goes through this in detail. It's really interesting. Exactly. Thank you, Lorraine. <laughs> uh, number three is everyone feels like they failed at some point in their life, which again, especially as teenagers, I feel like we live in a culture that encourages questing and achievement. And that's that's good to a certain extent, but only if it's kept in balance with the rest of it. And so that's why I like to tell people that everyone feels they failed. So hopefully that's quite reassuring. And my experience, which I'm sure is your experience as well, is that my life has got so much better with age, and I feel more and more myself the older I get. The fourth failure principle is that rejection is survivable. So that idea that if a friendship ends, or if your boyfriend breaks up with you, you can actually survive it and most relationships, we can treat them as lessons that have been sent to us. And just because they end doesn't make them a failure if we've learned something from them. Principle five is about being a failure scientist, essentially treating every failure that we go through as a means of data acquisition about what to do differently next time, how to approach it differently. And in that way, you learn how to succeed, actually, ironically, if you treat every failure as an opportunity to be a research scientist into that failure. The sixth failure principle is there's no such thing as a future you. I used to be someone with an extremely detailed five-year plan. And then I got to that five-year plan and I would changed as a person. And actually, I didn't want the same things. But because I hadn't executed the plan, I was making myself feel like a failure according to my own metrics. So it's that idea of paying attention to your present self as you are right now. And the final failure principle is that being honest makes you stronger. It's been my experience doing the How podcast and writing these books. It's absolutely been my experience that when people are vulnerable, it actually gives you an opportunity to connect very deeply. And when you share, when you take the risk of sharing your vulnerability, it's actually a source of great solidarity because other people will have experienced something similar to you. And that's the source of great connection.
1: That's brilliant. Very helpful. To drill down a bit on the teenagers and why philosophy works for teens, and I think it, it will, particularly actually for early teens, I think it'd be really useful. So Trish and I have got four teens between us. Uh, we've got a 20-year-old and an 11-year-old. These teens have had a particularly, the older ones, tough time. Uh, loneliness amplified in the pandemic. They've been the first generation to navigate social media. They're also, I think, now the first generation living with women who've discovered the perimenopause. We know what we're going through. It's a fairly similar time. It's a fairly similar hormonal uh, time for teens, both male and female, actually. What did you learn about this particular generation of teenagers, which our listeners are are bringing up, that could be useful for mums right now when you were researching this book? Because I'm sure you delved into it, didn't you?
0: Yeah, I mean, what a huge question and a great question, and it's really the answer to that is the key to to all life. (laughs) And you've got two minutes, Elizabeth. Come on, (laughs) okay, great. And six words. Yes, no hesitation, repetition, or deviation. I have three teenage stepchildren, and I completely agree with you that it has been an unbelievably difficult time. The social isolation of the pandemic at a time in their lives when you're already feeling quite self-conscious about making friendships and continuing friendships and putting yourself out there has been really, really devastating for many families across the country. And it's really difficult to navigate social media. And I feel very grateful that I didn't have that burden when, when I was growing up. And I think there's so much... Advice I could give, but I give it with the full understanding that every single family is individual in its own way. And so not all of this will help. One of the pieces of advice that I think I would give from having researched philosophy and spoken to the many teenagers in my life is that parents shouldn't be scared of boundaries, and nor should they be scared of allowing their children to be bored. And even if you feel that by setting a boundary, your child is going to ignore that boundary, it's still worth setting it because there's something about the safety of having those parameters that is incredibly important when teenagers are dealing with the wild west of online culture. It's incredibly important when the door closes at the end of the school day, as far as possible, that there are safe spaces in your home. And we were lucky enough, all all of us, to grow up in an age when the school day did end when you closed your bedroom door. And now, sadly, with phones and TikTok and Snapchat, that's no longer as feasible. But there's something very important, I believe, about the intention behind a boundary that a child ends up really respecting. And I think as well, I mean, this is a note for me and, and our generation, as well as teenagers, remind yourself not to compare your insides. So we all know what neurotic, anxious, insecure messes we are on the inside. And we live in a culture where we feel that we know a lot about other people, but it's actually mostly external, especially on social media, where we're constantly comparing ourselves to the people who seem to have the perfect sort of gym, TikTok body and Kim Kardashian in Costa Rica. But we're comparing our insides with their outsides. And what you're seeing is not the truth. And actually a far more sustainable focus is not to look outwards for success, validation or permission, but to look inwards with gratitude for who you already are and what you do as an individual, rather than how you are portrayed to the outside world or the pressure that you come under to portray yourself a certain way. And I think that that comes into play particularly with body image for girls, but also really for boys a lot in this day and age which is, I promise you, this is me talking to teenagers directly, you are so beautiful, not because of how you look, although I promise you you'll look back when you're in your 40s (laughs) and think, God, I really did look amazing when I was a teenager. You're so beautiful because you're the embodiment of our hope. You are hope made real. You are hope given flesh because of where you're at in your life, the amazing things that you might go on to do. And because your parents had so much hope Mm -hmm. and love that they created you. And that's like an incredible, beautiful thing. And so you're enough just as you are, like just as you are, you're a gift to the rest of us. And I think that's what I wanted to say, say. because teenagers have a really tough time. And the ones that I know are just so resilient and never get enough credit for it. Um, Mm -hmm, And I just want them to know that they're doing a really good job. Oh, it's such a shame, isn't it, that we're not biologically programmed to
2: have these thoughts in our teen years. It would be so helpful if we were. But what about you as a teenager? Do you recognise a lot of what our teenagers are going through from your own teenage years? What were you like as a teenager?
0: Yes, it's so interesting, because in preparation for this podcast, I was really thinking about it. And I cared so much what other people thought of me. And it was sort of agonizing the level of self-consciousness was so agonizing (laughs) and that was a classic thing of sort of projecting outwards and imagining what other people were making of me rather than asking myself who I really was and that's a very difficult thing to navigate and that's a question for a lifetime and as a teenager you can try on lots of different identities I think I really struggled with that because for a number of reasons, I am English as you can hear, but I actually grew up in Northern Ireland, just outside Derry, but I'd never lost my accent. And so I never really felt that I fitted in and uh, friendship came to me later in life. And so I didn't feel accepted or included. And that's quite a scary place to be when you're an adolescent and where you get a lot of reassurance from being part of a tribe. And my way of dealing with that was to be incredibly conscientious and well-behaved so that at school, at least, the teachers would accept me and my parents would be proud of me. And there would be an acceptance there. And I'm really grateful for all of that because I ended up doing one well of my, my exams. But it also created this false dichotomy where I thought if I achieved and I got A grades, I would be loved. And I took that thinking into the first steps of my adult life. And actually, I realised love is an inside job. And I, I wasn't going to feel that just by working overtime, getting the promotions, I had to do it internally. So that's what I was like as a teenager, and I played the trumpet. I loved cats, <laughs> <laughs> and um I was a bit of a young fogey. Like I listened to the Archers. Oh, <laughs> I mentioned that I,
2: earlier in the show. Lorraine pretended oh, not to know the what arches. the Archers yes. was. Yeah, oh, I mean, I really?
0: think. Oh, come on, <laughs> I, think, I
2: love the Archers. Do you
0: still listen to it?
2: Yes, I do. Yeah, I'm we're not talking blind. about the mm-hmm. artists now. I
0: Jenny's died. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll do that off air. We'll do that off air.
1: I think you made a really interesting point because I knew that about you. You had been very academic. You worked very hard. And I think for our teenagers, one of the things that they feel now is this extreme pressure academically. They put that pressure on themselves as much as we do as parents. And I guess I'm interested to learn because their brains are being sort of rebuilt neurologically right the way up until they're about 25. How do we relearn our language around putting pressure on teenagers to be a certain thing? Because even when I'm not, and you've done the most recent research, even when I'm not putting pressure on them, hoping I'm saying, I don't mind what grades you get. I'm still talking about grades. (laughs) You know, so it feels to me like the whole thing has to be taken apart and started again when we talk to them about academic achievement or how we should never use the word pretty. All these things, they feel very complicated for parents. It's hard
0: language wise. Yes, it's very difficult. And also because you're checking your language at the same time as knowing it's important to be truthful and authentic. And so that's a very difficult balance. I think achievement is a difficult one. And I'm definitely not one of those people who takes to Twitter every exam result season and says, well, doesn't matter what you get. It's just not realistic. Yeah, I got two C's and a D and look at me now. Because I think exams are important if you want them to be. If you are that kind of person, they were really important to me and I worked very hard. But I think the way that we can change the language is to say it's about doing your best rather than having to achieve the top grade. So do your best and work your hardest and let's see what happens. Because if you do your best and work your hardest and you you don't get the grade that you wanted, it doesn't make you a failure. There is some data we can acquire there as a parent and child about what we're going to do differently next time and what route we're now going to take. But the danger is if you say, "Oh, grades don't matter and I love you, whatever. And that's such a lovely thing. But it can also undermine someone who does want to work hard. and, And also then it can make people feel like I'm Advocating going hell-bent and sort of actively pursuing failure, which I'm not saying at all. I'm just saying it might sometimes be a byproduct and we can learn from it. So I think it's that it's switching the focus to doing and trying your best, and also having conversations with your teenagers about what is their passion, and like what areas do they want to work harder at and know more about And taking their feelings seriously because that's the other thing when you ask me about my my experience being a teenager i really remember how diminished i felt my feelings were by my family but also by society at large and actually when i'm feeling the feeling as we know it's very real to me and so i wanted acknowledgement of that and that's not to say that you should live your lives according to your teenagers shifting emotions and feelings it's just to say it's important to acknowledge it and if a teenager is feeling sad, say, I'm so sorry, you're feeling sad, and then move on to what to do next. Just that moment of acknowledgement, I think, is key. They need to be seen. They need to feel
1: heard, don't they? Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely.
2: Now, moving on to uh, present times, um, you're in your early 40s. And I think you said in an interview last year, Elizabeth, that you felt like you were in the prime of your life. Now, you know what's around the corner, don't you? We talk about <laughs> A lot on this show and you thanks have obviously to you. Yeah. spoken to a lot of your lovely guests, older women, um, perimenopause, menopause. Is that something that's on your radar? How well
0: prepared do you feel you are? How knowledgeable do you think you are about that? It is hugely on my radar, largely thanks to you two and women like you. And I feel so grateful to live in an era when we are giving women's issues, which actually are just human issues, the attention that they deserve, Because for so long, uh, huge things in our lives, huge medical issues that we go through have been marginalised. And I've experienced that firsthand with fertility medicine. And I feel that there are a lot of parallels with that and with how perimenopause and menopause have historically been treated or ignored. And I'm 44 now, so I'm definitely in in the age range. You know, I've got very good friends who are going through it right now. And even now with all of the information that's available and all of the brilliant pioneers who are sort of changing the landscape, I know that it's still a real battle to get the medication that is required if that's the route that you choose to go. And having to be an advocate for yourself at that time of life when so many women are dealing with looking after aging parents and teenage children and having vanishingly little time for themselves, and then you've got the perimenopause and you're feeling like you're or losing your mind, like that's such a difficult situation to put women in. So yes, I do feel that I have so much more information than my mother's generation would have done. And what I do know is that I will know where to turn. And not only will I have the ability to turn to experts in this field, but I can also turn to friends because we're talking about it so much more openly than we used to. I still stand by the fact I feel in the prime of my life because there's something like women are just so bloody strong. Because what we go through and what we learn along the way. We're just going to get stronger and
1: stronger. Like one long It's a Knockout course, which is a reference <laughs> to a TV show you might be too young to. So I'm, I'm, I'm not. I remember. <laughs> it, yeah. I'm really interested in, in this concept of expectations because that's at the kind of bottom of the premise of failing and getting over failing. So Definitely. the teenage years are actually very similar to the middle years for women, hormonal changes, big transformations all of us having expectations. A lot of women of my generation got to the mid-40s, late-40s, expectations hadn't worked out. (laughs) Um, But we were taught not to be vulnerable. Um, You know, I was just saying to Trish the other day, we couldn't even mention our children in meetings or that we had children. So we've come quite a long way um, from that. What do you think we can learn from the generation behind us Mm. about being vulnerable? Because being vulnerable and and talking about, as you said, that gives you connection and you can talk about not meeting those expectations and, and all the failures you've had. We just simply, Trish and I would never have talked about our failures. That would have been a terrible thing to say out loud, especially in front of the men folk uh, where we were. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been awful yes. to admit. So how can we learn from the generation behind us? It's a great question
0: because I, I am what is rather critically termed a geriatric millennial slash Gen Xer. It depends which survey you look at. So I was born in 1978. So I'm really on the cusp of it all. And I completely relate to that idea of having to play the men at their game. And actually, Me Too was a huge moment for me personally, because I realised I'd never thought of myself as someone who had experienced sexual assault, lucky me. But actually, the Me Too movement in 2017 made me recategorise moments in my past that I just accepted as the ticket price of entry to an all-male club in Fleet Street and, and I, so I think I'm, I'm still in a phase of kind of relearning and recategorizing and of course Me Too was started by a younger generation of women. So, I think the younger generation of sisters, they've taught me to question the very parameters, they've taught me to question the rules that I accepted for a really long time in my career and my personal life, almost to attack the premise. And that ties into your point about expectation, Rain, because what is failure? Failure is when life doesn't go according to plan. Who has shaped that plan? Who has shaped that expectation? Is it you or is it 1980s rom-coms? Is it wow. what your mother yeah. told you life should be? Like, is it, you know, Bridget actually, Jones? Bridget Jones? Very few of us, genuinely know what we want for ourselves and what our expectations expectations for ourselves are. So I think the younger generation have taught me that to attack the premise. And also if you're scared of vulnerability, that's okay. That's completely human and natural, but you can start small. So that example that you gave about working in a male-dominated industry. You wouldn't necessarily bring your whole vulnerable self to work and sit at your desk weeping because you had PMT or because you're, you'd burnt your toast, but you might be able to find a friendly colleague or someone you connected with who you could confide in and say, actually, I've just broken up with my boyfriend and that's been really tough for me, or I'm dealing with depression at the moment. And starting off in that very small way, that's a way of opening up a little chink of light of vulnerability that helps you feel more yourself in those settings so I think that's the other thing is that we can start small and the last thing I would say is that I've learned a lot about the value of boundaries from not only younger millennials but gen Zers who are never scared of a boundary and have a fundamental sense of self-worth which is kind of great for people who were raised in an era where you know waif-like grungy supermodels were sent down the catwalk and we were told that was the ideal of womanhood, we faced an assault on our Mm self-worth daily. And actually, it's really nice to think that there's a younger generation of women who don't feel that as much. So I've learned about self-worth and boundaries too.
2: And do you think um, the idea of sort of rest and looking after yourself and taking time to to look after yourself, again, something our generation never allowed to do that, never allowed to think about that. We are now more so as we're we're older. But do you think, again, that's coming through from a younger generation about being able to put yourself first sometimes and not feel guilty about it? And how do you rest and restore yourself, Elizabeth?
0: I think it definitely is. And actually, the pandemic has been really interesting in that respect as well, because I feel like I fought tooth and nail for my right to work from home. And When I did go freelance, I was able to work from home. It felt like such a major achievement. And then the pandemic, obviously, everyone experienced working from home. And now there's such a culture of not returning to the office because a lot of people have realised that actually it's better for their mental well-being to be able to fit in a a gym workout if they can in the middle of the day. And I feel a bit bitter because I'm like, no, that was my secret. (laughs) I got (laughs) from working from home. I do think rest and restoration is incredibly important. But I also think it's, it's fetishized in a way that makes busy working women who might or might not have children feel really guilty for not doing it in the right way. And I put right in quotation marks. For me, it's not about a 30 minute morning meditation and journaling and lighting a center candle and going for a hot girl walk and drinking my matcha latte before I even go to work. I, that's not feasible for me. So for me, it's about building it in in ways that work with my pre-existing day and it could just be literally closing my eyes for 20 seconds and going inside and just having a breath and just because we're so visually stimulated all the time just closing my eyes for 20 seconds is incredibly helpful and then I'm a huge believer in me for the the power of exercise I spend so much time in my head it's very important for me to be in my own body so I do strive to do at least one yoga class a week and I say class because I'm also someone who likes a lot of solitude but actually it's quite good for me to be with other people but not necessarily talking to them there's something very well if you work from home that shared space. Yeah, yeah yes yeah. exactly so I try and build in some exercise to my day and then reality tv <laughs> genuinely <laughs> is how I relax yeah, I love to watch a bit of reality TV wherever and whenever I can.
1: I think the boundaries is, is good around rest as well, which Trisha and I have talked about. Just being able to say, no, I'm not going to do that or no, I'm not going to come to that. That gives you that rest. And I think sometimes a lot of working women, particularly with children, you know, we go to all the parent evenings that we feel we should. We go to all the WhatsApp things that come up and actually learning to say, no, I'm not going to come to that. Not because I've got something else. I just
0: I'm not I did that tonight. In fact, someone asked me to meet up for a drink and I said, oh, I'd love to, but I can't. No further explanation required. Mm -hmm. You'd love to, but you can't. The fact is I need an evening for myself to do a Peloton, Like that's what I need. And I know that that's going to be good for my mental health. So you're completely right. And again, I think often as women, we feel that we oh someone we love an explanation and actually no can be a complete and loving sentence it's a very good idea now you
1: happily married to justin who you did actually yes. interview on your podcast which was a mm, fascinating yeah. um, and i know normally he doesn't like to be seen or heard anywhere no. <laughs> um, Now, you spoke um last year about suffering another miscarriage which must have been devastating for you now as you head into your 40s You've been through a lot trying to have children. What advice? We get to ask this a lot on our private Facebook group. What advice have you got for women facing similar issues that you have as they head into their forties and as they age? These difficult situations around mothering and motherhood.
0: What what can you tell our listeners? First of all, if anyone's going through a fertility journey right now, I see you and I feel you, and my heart goes out to you. It is, I think the hardest experience of my life. And it feels a very, very long path to travel. And the whole area of fertility medicine, sometimes it feels like it's designed to make you feel as though you're failing. And I want to say to you that you're not failing, that your body is doing its absolute best. And I encourage you to be grateful to your body. And to know that if it's not working you're being let down by drugs by science by medicine but it's not your failure that's incredibly important thing to say first of all the second thing that i would say is that the battle to become a parent i believe makes you into an extraordinary parent i believe that you are forging your parenting skills right now because of what you're going through and because of how hard you're having to fight for your child and the third thing I would say is that I wouldn't have chosen this path, but I'm so immensely grateful for the women and men that I've met along this way, because I believe that we're part of a pioneering generation that's showing and telling people that they don't have to have children in order to be fulfilled or complete in some way. You carry your completeness within you. And I've met some of the most incredible, strong, warrior-like women. And we were talking about vulnerability as a shortcut earlier. I feel I have that with, it's particularly women, actually, who have been through it. I just feel I have that total shortcut to becoming like soul sisters because we know what it is. And so that's something that you can take from it. It's not something that any of us would choose, and yet we can take something positive from it. and so. I think I would say all of those things. Mm-hmm. And also, it is a form of grief. If you're if it's not turning out the way that you would desire it to turn out, and that's been my experience for me, that's grief. And it took me a really long time to be able to admit that to myself because in so many instances you're grieving an absence, but you're also grieving a dream and a hope and a belief. And it's very difficult sometimes to retain hope when it keeps being bashed around and it's okay to allow yourself to grieve and that's messy and it's not linear and it will come up probably throughout your life it might come up and that's okay it's part of being human and I don't expect you to be neat I don't expect you to put on a brave face you can show up however you want to show up with me, and I hope that that's a safe space. Those are all the things that I would Aww. like to say.
2: That's made me feel quite emotional, Elizabeth, because I, I had a seven year fertility journey. So I, uh, so even though I had twins, that seven years of my life, it's still so strong and powerful in here, and all the feelings, the questions, what's wrong with me? Why can't I be a parent? All of that, it still it still really resonates, and really it's quite painful. But I think we need to talk about a little bit of furry joy because you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You have Huxley. We have the podcat Margot. Margot. Um Hello. I have to say, cats have brought me through a lot of emotional uh times yeah. in life. Tell us about Huxley then. He's uh he's very cute.
0: <laughs> it's almost like I've lived my entire life waiting for this question. Thank you so much for <laughs> <laughs> asking me about Huxley. Um Huxley would normally be making an appearance around now, mm. but we've just moved out to get some building work done and he's getting used to his new digs and he's not quite settled yet. Huxley is just a shining light of my life. He's a, oh. ginger, he's a ginger Tom, and we got him in November 2019 because we found him on a website called Pets for Homes, and his previous lovely owner had to find a new family for him because her landlord didn't allow pets. And he's just a total joy. Now, I know that there are people listening who won't be cat people, but I this guarantee you that Huxley will turn you. yes. <laughs> You're even wearing a Huxley-like colour. I am. I've got orange. orange. (laughs) I guarantee Huxley is the cat that can turn you because he's he's incredibly sociable and affectionate and he's essentially a dog wrapped up in a cat's body and dog people have met him and have totally changed their minds about cats. That's all I'm saying. So he's very lovely and I hugely emotionally over-identify with him which is not that <laughs> healthy to the extent that you know he's very sociable so whenever we go away on holiday I actually like I want someone to move in to be with him yes. not just to go and see mm. are you the same with Margot Trish yes yeah,
2: she we, she has to have somebody here with her so it's quite complex trying to oh, have a dog so we chats have chats to... about
1: Margot's holiday care <laughs>
2: The dog has to go to the dog minder and we still have to get a house sitter for Margot. She doesn't like being on her own. She's quite a high-maintenance cat, but um, she brings a lot of joy. She normally appears at the end of our recording, doesn't yeah. she? She might make a little appearance. She does, yes. Yeah. She she comes
1: to see me, doesn't she, usually? That's
2: her. Well, I think she can sense you. There's a do, subliminal thing Do you know what going. she did? <laughs>
1: <laughs> One of the first times I spent quite a long time at Trish's house because we had a lot to do, I brought quite an expensive handbag. It was a nice designer <laughs> handbag. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. I had been there 10 minutes and Margot had got into it. Into the handbag. Literally because. into the handbag. Mm. We don't know what the psychology of that was mm. <laughs> anyway you know, it's
0: a bit like some, sometimes with young children they gravitate towards the person who doesn't who thinks they don't really like children yeah or it's, like, it's, yeah, it's it. a bit like that exactly okay. definitely
1: that so uh, we can't I mean we haven't had time to discuss your love of cheese which is a whole different podcast <laughs> so we can do another day that's a whole exactly um, but you have other things happening you've got philosophy for teens which is out now but you've got another book coming out um, and also I do think we should mention best friend therapy your other podcast as well so tell us what next for Elizabeth Day
0: so you're right I have a book coming out at the end of March uh, which is called Friendaholic Confessions of a Friendship Addict and it's essentially an attempt to give friendship a language and a vocabulary and an ode to friendship a look at the history of friendship and as part of it I interview various different people around the world about what friendship means to them but also five of my own dear friends about how they experience friendship. And one of those friends I have to thank you for, Lorraine, because one of those friends is Charmaine Lovegrove, who used to be the literary editor at Elle. And I met her at a dinner hosted by Elle and we fell in platonic love at first sight across the table. So thank you so much for that. So I owe you a lot.
1: Well also she's a game changer, isn't she, as a publisher, Charmaine. She's she, she includes so many diverse voices in what she's done. She's really changed the landscape, I think, for new writers.
0: Yeah, an incredible powerhouse. So that's Friendaholic. And then Best Friend Therapy, even though it's got a friend in the title, two separate projects, just obsessed with friends. (laughs) Um, Best Friend Therapy is a podcast that I do with my best friend, Emma Reed Terrell, who just so happens to be, to my mind, the world's best therapist. And for many years, I was getting the benefit of her therapeutic expertise for free. And I just felt like she was such an invaluable resource that I wanted to I I wanted to give people the experience of her. And so many people can't afford therapy. There are really long NHS waiting lists. And Best Friend Therapy is a weekly podcast where we discuss things that are on our minds, but we also discuss kind of mental health issues and broader topics like grief, boundaries, people pleasing, and we chat about it as best friends, but she brings all of her extraordinary expertise to bear on that and we really love doing it they're the kind of conversations we'd have anyway but it's really nice being able to share them with a growing community
1: thank you very much for coming on our podcast it's been lovely chatting to you i think it's been really useful um, for our female listeners don't you trish
0: thank you so much for having me i feel like it's been a long time coming in the sense that like I've wanted to come on for ages. It feels like sort of flirting across a crowded bar. So I'm so happy. Thank you so much for having me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
2: So for today's Nostalgia Noodle, we've been inspired by all the Sexy Sex, Sex, Sex chat from earlier. Can you stop <laughs> saying Sexy Sex? <laughs> oh, it really upsets show. me. I don't know and why. And Julian Anderson's new book. So we thought we should mention the original, the Nancy Friday book. Yes. What was it called, Lorraine, that we all, all read in the 70s and 80s? My
1: Secret Garden. Exactly. Do you know what year that came out? Cuz I thought it was
2: much way later. I bet it was early 70s, but we probably read it in the 80s or 73.
1: Yeah. yeah, so we wouldn't have read right. it probably till we we were able to buy it ourselves. Mm. <laughs> Couldn't have got our mums to buy no. it.
2: <laughs> but it was quite goey, wasn't it? It was all about the women's sexual fantasies. There were some quite um sort of far out yes. ones that what didn't just involve elasticated waist trousers. There was there were There were animals.
1: Yeah. (gasps) Yeah, it was really everything inside women's minds that they'd never would never dream of talking about, saying, contemplating, discussing ever out loud, isn't it? I mean it came out at the same time as um, the Erica Young novel, Fear of Flying, Mm. which was the same kind of sexually well, sexually explicit for women.
2: Do we want to say the phrase that came out of that book? The zipless I can't swear on, no. on, on audio, Trish. If anybody
1: remembers that. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's amazing, <laughs> isn't it? We had that, that and we've mm. come all this way where we can't really even, we, we can't even talk about it without
2: laughing out loud still. I know, we're silly, aren't we? It's our generation.
1: Well, that's it, Trish. We've come to the end of another sexy, sexy episode. <laughs> postcards from midlife uh please download us etc etc from your podcast subscriber we're coming out on a monday now and tell all your friends about us where can they find us trish
2: Well, you can find us, you can email us, hello at postcardsfromidlife.com. You can find episodes of the podcast on all the platforms, Audible, Apple, Acast, Spotify, we are everywhere. And of course, the Facebook group. We'd love you all to come and join us on that because it's so much fun and information and advice and support on there. Um, And that's it for this week. Goodbye. Goodbye.